Did you know that Yopon is the only tea plant indigenous to the United States? Hi, I'm CJ, the owner of Emerald Coast Tea Company. We have a line of Yopon teas and Yopon tea blends that will open your eyes to tea that is literally made in the USA. Check out our entire line of teas at www.emeraldcoastteacompany.com. Honey, this ain't your mama's tea. They're funding abortions, demanding Americans comply with their woke climate agenda. They teach people that the U.S. is a system of white supremacy while stripping away your Second Amendment rights. A California Democrat? No. It's Bank of America under CEO Brian Moynihan. There's enough people pushing political agendas in America. Your bank shouldn't be one of them. Bank of America. Their lies start with their name. No fear. No political correctness. No wokeism. You're listening to Underground USA. Thanks for downloading, listening, and sharing. My name is Frank Salvato. I'd like to touch on a subject that Gen Zers and Gen Z alphas and maybe even some latter millennials wouldn't fully understand from experience. The subject matter is what most people mistakenly call radical Islam. It is important for a couple of significant reasons, one of which concerns what is happening in the Middle East today. People who were alive and aware during and after the attacks of September 11, 2001, had the opportunity to hear the open debate that took place about the covenants and tenets of Islam. During that debate, a popular notion, albeit one based on an untruth and a defective understanding of the Quran and Hadith, was that Islam is a religion of peace. It is not. It never has been. But that didn't keep people of influence from declaring it so. From presidents like George W. Bush and Barack Obama, The face of terror is not the true faith of Islam. That's not what Islam is all about. Islam is peace. For more than a thousand years, people have been drawn to Islam's message of peace. And the very word itself, Islam, comes from salam, peace. The standard greeting is, assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. And like so many faiths, Islam is rooted in a commitment to compassion and mercy. To failed presidential candidates like Hillary Clinton. Let's be clear, though. Islam is not our adversary. Muslims are peaceful and tolerant people and have nothing whatsoever to do with terrorism. The obsession in some quarters with a clash of civilization or repeating the specific words radical Islamic terrorism isn't just a distraction. It gives these criminals, these murderers, more standing than they deserve. The preferred narrative was clear. Islam is a religion of peace. But perhaps the preeminent scholar on the Quran, Hadith, and Islam in general, 
Robert Spencer, debunks that notion in short order. Islam is not a religion of peace. But in the age of absurdity, you can't say that. And you probably know, if you have ever gotten into any conversations with any leftists on your campuses, that if you suggest that Islam is not a religion of peace, then you are a racist, bigoted, genocidally-minded, hate-mongering Islamophobe. I'm here to tell you, Islam is not a religion of peace. Now, chapter 9, verse 5. When the sacred months are over, kill the idolaters wherever you find them. Chapter 4, verse 89. They wish that you would disbelieve just as they disbelieve so that you may be all alike. Do not, therefore, take allies from them until they emigrate in the way of Allah. But if they turn their backs, then seize them and kill them wherever you find them. There it is again. Chapter 2, verse 191. Kill them wherever you find them. Chapter 9, verse 5 does not say, kill them wherever you find them, but it does say, fight against those who do not believe in Allah nor in the last day and do not forbid what he has forbidden, even if they are of the people of the book, which is Jews and Christians primarily, until they pay the jizya, which is a tax, with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. In other words, fight against the Jews and the Christians until they submit, denied basic rights under the rule of Islamic law. Chapter 8, verse 39, fight them until religion is all for Allah, which means unless if there are other people of other religions, then you got to keep fighting. So I would submit to you on the basis of this, and there's many, much, much more that I could quote. Islam is not a religion of peace, but in the age of absurdity, you can't say that. But what's in the book is in the book, and those who do commit violence in the name of Islam have abundant textual support for what they are doing. They are able to point to passages of the Quran and quotations from Muhammad and statements from Islamic scholars and clerics to say Islam commands warfare and Muslims must wage war against unbelievers and subjugate them under the rule of Islamic law. I bring this up because of the epidemic of Gen Z, Gen Z Alpha, and Millennials who have taken to the streets in support of Hamas, claiming the entirety of the West exists as Islamophobic and that the West is the aggressor, that the religion of peace is under attack. As an aside, Hamas is a U.S. State Department-recognized terrorist organization supported in its mission by the Muslim Brotherhood and now heavily funded by the number one state sponsor of terrorism in the world, Iran. The list of their attacks on Israel and Israeli citizens alone is exhaustive. Islam is a religion of conquest, and that conquest, as Spencer pointed out in my brief clip, is executed by the sword. And it's not the radicalized Muslim that executes this conquest. It is the devout Muslim that executes this conquest. The demographic within the Muslim world that does commit acts of terrorism is not a demographic that has been radicalized. Rather, they are simply following the precise teachings in the Quran and the Hadith. Some would ask, well, isn't that just like the Christians and the Crusades? Yes and no and irrelevant. While the Christian Crusades were bloody and totalitarian, they were bastardized by politics and the greed for power that has its seeds in every human being. 
More important is that the Crusades ended with an understanding that they were wrong, ushering in Reformation in the Christian Church. Further, and here is where Christianity and Islam are incredibly different, the Bible and the Torah are written as second-hand accountings of the teachings of the Christian God. The Quran, Muslims insist, is the literal word of Allah. So where the Crusaders had to interpret the words of God to justify their actions, Muslims are commanded by the literal word of their God to execute what is held within the Quran without interpretation. If a Muslim wants to be devout, he or she must do as commanded. That gives the commanded tenets that Spencer covered specific and explicit meaning, especially chapter 2, verse 191, which says, Kill them wherever you come upon them, and drive them out of the places from which they have driven you out. As to the question's irrelevancy, today it is the devout in the Islamic faith that launch missiles into civilian areas in actions of conquest, not Christians. In the 2000s, I served as the executive director of BasicsProject.org, an educational 501c3 organization focused on exposing the internal and external threats to the United States and eradicating constitutional illiteracy. The internal threats were centered on progressivism and neo-fascism, and the external threats focused on those emanating from devout Islamism. I have read and studied the books. I know Robert Spencer, as well as many others, including Wava Sultan, Paul L. Williams, Walid Ferris, Brigitte Gabriel, and many others considered learned voices on the topic of Islam. There are at least two things on which we all agree. One, it is the devout Muslim that poses the threat because of his or her adherence to the letter of the Quran. And two, Islam is not a religion of peace. And so it is that the onus of any effort to demilitarize the Islamic culture must weigh heavily on the devout within the Islamic faith. It is they who must reject the violence that is commanded by Allah in the Quran, and that'll take reformation that will necessarily move the over one billion Muslims away from the literal teachings of their God. That is no small task. What can help this reformation along is this. The West needs to be honest about the issue instead of creating false narratives like Islam is a religion of peace. It most certainly is not. And we can also help the Islamic world move away from violence and the use of terrorism as a tool of conquest by establishing the truth that it is not a small number of radicalized Muslims that exploit this tool, but the devout who are simply following the commands of their deity. For the entirety of the West, including the Gen Zers, Gen Z Alphas, and Millennials, to grasp these realities would finally set the stage for meaningful interaction on the matter with those in the Islamic world. Until then, we need to prepare for more Islamo-fascistic attacks of conquest in lands not already under their totalitarian and violent thumbs of Islamic Sharia law. Now, this morning's segment on America's Third Watch with Kyle Warren broadcasts coast-to-coast on the Salem and Genesis Communications Networks.
News, Insight, Passion. AM 930, The Answer. Kyle Warren with you. And we've got Frank Silvato, as I said. Good morning, Frank. Mr. Kyle. Hey, well, yes, happy Monday to you. Uh, but I'll tell you, though, you know, as we all know, this has been a very, very tragic weekend uh, with the three U.S. service members being killed at a base in Jordan, uh, but also some 34 others being injured, many or some, we understand, with things like traumatic brain injury. And that number may grow, we understand. Well, and, and this, is the, this is the moment of truth. What does the Biden administration do? It, it's one thing to hurl invectives towards your foe and to, you know, maybe lob a few cruise missiles and take out a few drones, but we have loss of life now. And traditionally, that's an act of war. So what is the response? I know that Iran is, is definitely trying to goad the United States into confrontation. Every single thing that they've done uh, since October 7th and a little bit before has been provocative towards the United States saying, come on, come on, come on, give it to me, come on. They want it. They want to light the candle in the Middle East pretty, pretty badly. Um, that kind of indicates to me that they've got something nuclear going on. But, you know, this is a game of chess, and it's not just regular chess, it's three-tiered chess. One, a, a, a game where the, where the one side in the United States we can play the game. We've played the game before, but the person sitting in the seat behind the chessboard, I don't think they're capable or qualified to be able to respond to this thing uh, with, with the tactics necessary to keep from entering into a third world war. So I'm curious to see what's going to happen in response. Well, indeed. And I'm, I'm with you. I think a lot of people have a, a very... They're very you know, concerned about, is it Joe Biden who's going to make these decisions? Is he making the decisions or is there a group that's formulating policy? And if that would be the case, many in these group, in this group, one might think, would have a more pro, for lack of a better term, pro Iran sort of starting point with all of this. And that, oh, that would be very terrifying. Absolutely. Valerie Jarrett was born in Tehran. Right. You know, so... Any response is going to be much softer, or at least it it appears it would be, than the the response of let's say a Donald Trump or a Ronald Reagan or even a George W. Bush, you know, to to what has happened. But make no mistake, we would be justified to take it to the limit because of the loss of life and the maiming of our soldiers. They were directly targeted, you know, uh, in in their barracks. By the way. Yeah, this was yeah a direct attack. It wasn't a combat situation at all. You know, so this is a this is a punch in punch in the gut, and they're daring they're daring us to respond, and, and it requires something that's very very tactful, but that sends a very strong message. Um, I'd love to be able to see the unleashing of forces to decimate their nuclear program. You know, the people who lost loved ones in this and who have people who are gravely injured, 
would probably want more of a response than that, and they would be justified in that asking. Right. So now, but, uh, like but, compl- but complete, but completely taking out their nuclear capability, including research, justified. Well, no, I completely agree, and that that would include, of course, the bunker busters and so forth. We know that they buried their facilities so very, very deep. But I have a feeling that you know the American military knows how to get to that. But it act- does beg the question, though, because you've got people like Lindsey Graham. They're calling for directed attacks on Iran itself. And then others want to see the response more or less confined to, uh, you know, those who might launch the attack in, the, in that region, in that other area, other than Iran proper. Uh, do you think it's going to be uh, a full out, you know, full frontal attack on Iran? If it is, then we, we've got war. Then we've got the United States in a, in a war with a very committed foe. Um, wouldn't mind seeing them take out the hierarchy as far as government is concerned. I, I wouldn't cry if, if all of a sudden the mullahs in mask suddenly weren't able to wake up. You know, and the people of Iran wouldn't, bo- wouldn't be bothered by that either. Remember what happened just a couple years ago in the, in the color revolution. You know, they, right. t- they took to the street and we failed to respond and to help them in an, in an appropriate way, in my opinion. We should have been behind them 100%. So if, if that is the response, okay, I, I can go with that too. But I do think because of what's happening over in Gaza, we should really think about taking out completely their nuclear capability. Well, I, I think what you were talking about was very chilling. The idea of they're goading us so much, they think that they have an advantage there or something that they want to come out maybe in, re- in response and feel justified. One of the things Iran can do, too, is they can uh, they can try to mess with the uh, Straits of Hormuz. They can also, of course, try to activate other terrorist uh, events uh, to occur. Uh, that also might be something that they're they're looking to do and try to justify. And you see they're effective at it. You know, just by supporting these these many different groups, we're seeing them support Hamas and Hezbollah right now. But if they start expanding their influence with other smaller groups like Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades and and the remnants of ISIS and and uh, the the other groups who are prominent in the region, you know, giving them giving them tasks and marching orders to affect chaos in the region, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be bullets flying at soldiers. It can be economic as well. We saw that the result of economic terrorism on 9-11, where they, you know, aside from the fact that they killed 3,000 plus people and the buildings came down and the Pentagon was hit and there's a hole in Shanksville, the economic chaos that they instituted across the world because of that uh, was, was incredible. So if Iran, who's got resources now, thanks to the Biden administration and the fickle West that wants to see them come back into the fold, which will never, ever happen. (laughs) Non-starter. Yeah. Yeah. That never happen with the mullahs in charge. The the whole regime over there is, and, and I dare say, even though it is effective and totalitarian and in control, it's illegitimate because of the way it was started. You know, that, that whole regime is about, we are going to move the, the conquest of Islam forward. That is the, in the tenets of Islam. Anybody who has read the, 
Quran and the Hadith understands that Islam, the religion, the ideology is tasked with global domination. The, the Mullahs want to move that forward. And they, and, and they feel through the chaos that they can affect through their meddling in, uh, with peace in the region. It's a good starting point. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because that is an aspect here that is different than your standard issue territorial dispute, standard issue, uh, you know, conflict, for lack of a better expression, because they're on a mission. I mean, and that's the that's the enemy that you're dealing with. Um, and uh, they they're not going to simply sort of knuckle under because they believe that they have some sort of, you know, lack of a better expression, some sort of holy uh, agenda here in some way. Yeah, to not to make light of the situation, to borrow from Jake Elwood, they're they're on a mission from God. <laughs> right. That's that's right. what that's what they truly, honestly believe. When they go out and kill three hundred, three thousand, you know, when when they go out and kill in mass numbers, the reason they celebrate in the street is because it is a religious victory for them, and they and they fight with the fervor of of a religious charge. So where Putin wants to see Ukraine back. That's a matter of pride and territory. The people in, in who are devout, and I, this is where I, I wish people would stop using the, the term radical Islam. There's no radical Islam when it comes to the terrorists or the devout. Because the people who want to see this conquest, who, who happen to be Muslim, who support this conquest, they're just following the religion to the letter. So that makes them devout. It doesn't make them radical. It makes them devout. So, you know, when we talk about the people who would gladly blow themselves up with an explosive vest, those are devout Muslims. And I, the Iranian mullahs are devout in their, in their quest. And, and when you bring in the nuclear uh, aspect to that, it becomes a let God sort them out kind of a, of a mentality. And, and again, this is, it's it's important to understand this kind of stuff because it's not just it because you know for example we hear about well you know we need to inflict enough pain to make this stop and we're conventionally that's right but it seems that you know the mullahs can take a lot more pain because they think they're the you know they're getting points for the pain for some reason absolutely death is a reward that's the one thing osama bin laden wrote in in his writings because you you fear death we welcome death because it is the ultimate goal, the ultimate release. We, we want it. We celebrate it. So that's why you'll never win. I mean, he was very straightforward about it, and he believed it. If you, if you read his writings, especially the, uh, the fatwas, there's two fatwas that happened before 9-11. If you read those, you understand they are not scared to die. They, they want to figure out how to, how to affect that to advance Islam and, and affect the most damage. So we, where, where we say, well, we can't go in there, we're going to suffer a lot of casualties. They don't care. They, they don't care. They, they celebrate the suicide bomber the night before. It's a big party and off you go, brother. You know, so, right. yeah. so the mentality is different. Now, the mullahs understand that that in order for the entire weight of the West not to come down on them very quickly so that they can make their long mission last, 
that it has to look right in the in the eyes of the West and in the media. So they need us to attack. Well, indeed, indeed. But uh, even so, this is a chronic issue. I mean, you can try to degrade. This is what the Pentagon or the White House will talk about, right? The degradation of their ability or their their uh, their the terrorist groups that they back, their ability to to attack our our service personnel again. But it seems to me that it's it's never over. It, there's it's, it's always going to be this chronic thing that you're constantly treating. Until you can steer the masses away from from the religion of Islam, and I know I'm going to get some crap about this, but it's just the truth. Until you can steer the masses away from Islam and make it a very minor religion, which is very hard to do, because illiteracy is pretty prevalent in the in the poor areas of the Middle East, and they get all of their information and all of their news and their knowledge about the world from the mosques. And the mosques over there are devout mosques, which means in, in old terms, they're radicalized. They, they believe it's the great Satan. So we, we do have to go until we can win hearts and minds. We do have to degrade their capability to inflict harm on, on the Western world, including on military, on, on military locations well you know but with back in the trump administration there seemed to be a better consensus even in the middle east about trying to contain iran because they were you know places like saudi arabia for for the most part understood that iran was a was a threat or at the very least the trump administration was able to uh to get that kind of consensus so that iran couldn't spread its hegemony so easily well, he exploited the rift between the Sunni and the Shiite. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about Iran and you're talking about Saudi Arabia, you're talking about Iran being Shiite and Saudi Arabia being Sunni. They don't like each other. They really don't like each other. That's why after 9-11, there was a, a larger lobby um, amongst the think tanks that said, why don't we just let them kill each other and just back out of it? Well, then you had some people who were a little bit more materialistic who said, it's because they've got oil. Right, right. Yeah. You know, I think back with the Iran Iraq war, I think Kissinger, if I recall correctly, I think Kissinger said something to the effect of it's a great war as long as nobody wins because they, they felt like, you know, they're constantly fighting each other and they stay out of everybody else's business, I guess, uh, to a great degree. But this is coming to a head. I mean, this this is, you know, these these deaths and these casualties could be a real turning point you know, in, in where we go from here, there's so much happening, obviously with the Middle East, but the border dispute uh, between Texas and the Biden administration uh, continues on. Uh, Governor Abbott keeps uh, putting up more of this razor wire. They continue to sort of build this barrier. Uh, what, what do you think is the latest on this in terms of uh, where this might be going, um, you know, confrontation wise? Well, confrontational-wise, it's all going to be on paper. I don't think we're going to see bullets. I, I really I really don't. There's a lot of people talking about, we're, we're lighting the fuse for a second civil war. Um, that You could use that moniker if you want to, but it's not going to be on a, on a battlefield other than one on paper. Uh, it really has to be a confrontation that's constitutional in nature. You've got 25 governors 
who are who are fully supporting Abbott in the state of Texas. It is a popular movement that has gained fire in social media. So the Biden administration doesn't even have the support of the American people in, in what they've been doing. And that's because what they've been doing has been grotesquely unconstitutional. They're not, they're violating the take care clause. And, and when you have the minds like Mark Levin and Victor Davis Hanson starting to talk about that violation and the right for impeachment, um, you're getting into some pretty substantive uh, discussion on the legitimacy of removing people here. Right. Maybe, maybe that's the Democrats' game plan going into elect, you know, the meat of the election season to not have Biden be the guy. I don't know. But what we do know here is there is a violation of the Take Care Clause, which, which in the Constitution, which mandates that the executive branch execute the, the, the signed codified laws of the land that have been legislated and they're not doing that on the southern border. Well, that's right. I mean, that's a de facto sin of omission. And, you know, I'm not, I'm actively not going to do my duty on this. And that's an act in and of itself that they can point to if they wanted to come up with, with an impeachment argument. Absolutely. There's no way to argue against it. It's tangible. It's right here. We can all see it. Don't have to prove it. It's occurring. You know, by by the number of 10 million, I believe, so far since Biden's taken office. So you can't argue that it's not happening. So there would the trial would be almost, I won't say moot, but it's just a presenting of the issue itself because we can all see it. Even even people who, like Mayorkas, he, you know, he can't say that the, that the border's under control anymore. He's lying hey. to Congress. So, um uh, until we make a move about something, and it doesn't necessarily have to be impeachment, but the Speaker of the House and the Republican Caucus would have to be very uh, cohesive in order to be able to say, all right, then I guess we're not funding X, Y, and Z until you actually execute, do, and, 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 and let us see the results of your actions to close that border. And, and the idea that Biden's come out recently saying, I need new legislation to take control of the border, and and I can't believe that the House hasn't moved on this. Talk about gaslighting. <laughs> well, sure, because that's all campaign, you know, style stuff that is just designed to say these Republicans. Even Karine Jean Pierre the other day, it's this governor, and it's unfortunate this governor is is doing this. You know, they they really think that I guess they think we're that stupid. Well, I, I'm going to toss Mitch McConnell in there because there's no need for a new bill about anything. There really isn't. Enforce the laws that are on the books, and this ends at the southern border. So there's no need for new legislation. We shouldn't be talking about compromises to move immigration reform uh, through the halls of Congress. We don't need it. You, you, you want a, um, an exercise in good faith from the left? Take care of the border now and start deporting people who are here illegally, period. Just do it. Then we can sit down and talk about your dreamers. Then we can sit down and talk about how you want to go about this from this point forward. But until then, we're not funding any of the projects that you want to have moved through the house. Not one mm -hmm. until this is taken care of by the enforcement of the laws that are on the books. And quite honestly, in the house, if we just would have performed better last election so that we would have had a comfortable margin of majority in the house we could have called for a quorum vote and then 
gaveled out the house to shut it down completely. That, yeah, very strategic indeed. Well, one, one of the things about the Texas dispute here uh, is that there, I think there are forces that really do want to see America start to literally rip itself apart. In fact, there's a Russian lawmaker, you know, this is kind of humorous, but there's a Russian lawmaker who says he wants to help Texas get its independence from the United States. You know, I mean, people really just want to seize on this kind of stuff. And because a weaker America, a divided America, in their eyes, is a weak America. Well, and, and this is this is one of the reasons that, that the solution of nullification is something that, that avoids a shooting war and makes the country stronger. The federal government, our system of government was not designed to have a top-down heavy hand. It just wasn't. It wasn't the way it was created to work. It was a, a labyrinth of checks and balances that saw the federal government pick up the slack in between the authority of the 50 states when they had to interact with one another. Texas has every right in the world to safeguard their citizenry, and right now their citizenry isn't safe. The federal government declined to enforce the federal laws, so Texas has the right to pick up that mantle. It's just the way the Constitution reads. But when you get a a, a jaded and politicized Senate that isn't, look, isn't looking out for the health and well-being of the state, that's the way this was set up. Our country was supposed to have the House, which presented the people's argument in Washington, D.C., and the Senate, which presented the state's argument in Washington, D.C. No state in the Union would say, well, you know, if they don't want to enforce the laws and there's millions of people coming over, uh, we, we can sign on to that. If it wasn't because politics was in control instead of the way the government was supposed to be executed, every senator from every state would be going, whoa, if you're not going to enforce federal laws and we can't sign into any of this stuff, you know, and, and the Senate would have said, no, we had, you know, we, we voted overwhelmingly everything lost. So the states have every right to do this. And if this, and if SCOTUS is looking at the constitution without political eyes, they go all in for the state of Texas. No, I, I agree. That's what I was going to ask is the idea that, you know, when this does play out, ostensibly the Supreme Court allowed this to continue, uh, you know, to actually lift the ban on cutting the wire until this plays out. But um, uh, in your crystal ball, do you think that the Supreme Court's gonna, uh, going to, uh, after hearing arguments, I don't, I don't see how they could side, you know, uh, or not side with Texas. A very, a very unsatisfying answer coming your way. Yeah. They, they ruled Obamacare was a tax. That's true. Well, that was John Roberts. That's right. Yeah. So in that, in that vein, you know, so trying to predict what a politicized court will do, that's, you know, you're always walking on very, very thin ice and Roberts has turned into a wild card. You never know whether he's going to side with the constitution or whether he wants to get invited to cocktail parties inside the beltway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very, very good observation. And in, indeed. But at least at this very moment, do you think the Biden administration is blinking or are they biding their time uh, in, in order to go in and try to remove some of the stuff? Because they haven't done so, at least as yet. You know, the problem here is, and, and this is the rumblings coming from the border, is that the, the Border Patrol personnel are not going to do it. 
Interesting. They're, they they have so far refused to do anything that that is being inferred as a go ahead and start from the Biden administration because even the the people with boots in the ground for the border patrol know it's wrong. They know it's wrong, and they're tired of being used as rubber stamp um, uh, paper pushers when there's things happening there that affects their family too. So I think if you're going to see a rebellion. It's going to be rank and file border patrol people saying we're refusing to follow this order. It's unconstitutional. Well, that will be a very interesting day if that if that happens. And I, I think you're right. I think there's not there's a good possibility for that. Frank Silvano, undergroundusa.com, author of the book Nullification. Great discussion this morning, sir. We'll talk to you again on Friday. Stay low, my friend. If you like the podcast, subscribe, leave a comment, rate it if your platform lets you. Be sure to head on over to undergroundusa.com to sign up for our Substack, which comes straight to you, circumventing the censors and the fact checkers, because we both know that they're worthless, and that's been proven over time. And be sure to pick up your copy of Nullification, the case for decentralizing the federal government, available in Kindle and paperback over at amazon.com. You're listening to Underground USA. My name is Frank Salvato, and we will be back right after this. This podcast is a production of the Compass Point Group.